0: Today, we are going inside the mind of a master creator, 24-year-old Frank Miller, way before he would dominate comics and change the face of graphic illustration forever. On top of the world, having taken Daredevil all the way to number one, Frank Miller sat down with the Comics Journal and spilled all of his ideas about how he approaches crafting the story, creators, the creation of Elektra, his influences, his inspirations. All of the Frank Miller juice from 1982 is squeezed here today, and we discuss the birth, the launch place of the Marvel and Dietz DC royalty system that started everything on an all-new Robservations. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. I write comics, I draw comics, I publish comics, I produce comics. I've been doing it for 37 years, and this podcast exists to share my love of all things comic book and superheroes with you, the the listener, and uh, I am so grateful, so very grateful that you tune in uh, each and every podcast if this is your first podcast podcast you're in for a doozy today we are going to discuss one of the all-time greats one of the biggest uh most influential creators contributors to comics of the last 45 years uh his name is frank miller we're going to jump right into him frank miller has crafted instant classics with his daredevil run that that made him the superstar uh that he would maintain to this day batman dark Knight. Dark Knight Returns changed Batman forever. I've done dedicated podcasts to this effect. You can search Dark Knight Batman. There's generally always going to be a uh, Frank Miller reference in there because the work was and is and remains that impactful. We talk comics, we talk toys, we talk movies, streaming here all the time, constantly. And the one thing is, we go into today. If you're like, oh man, it's it's Frank Miller again. This is. Uh, really Daredevil-centric. It is a 1982, January 1982 issue of the Comics Journal. I'm so happy to bring this to you. It is issue number 70, the winter edition of the Comics Journal. The Comics Journal was a storied publication where artists would just go on and talk unfiltered. It was the most in-depth way that you could understand a creator's approach to his craft. To what, how we approached creating the page, the characters, the concepts, the uh, you know the inspirations. It was a it was a magazine that I never missed. I always loved when it came out. It always had huge interviews. On this show, we have had several interviews shared, really from the vault that I have dug them up from Howard Chakin to John Byrne. Uh, today, we're going to add the illustrious. Frank Miller, young Frank Miller. We're going to talk to young 24-year-old Frank Miller at the top of his Marvel popularity at this time. Daredevil has, at the time of this uh, interview, Daredevil has skyrocketed to the number one comic book at Marvel Comics, the number one comic book in the comics industry. outselling everything else from Marvel and DC. A book that was on bi-monthly, six issues a year status prior to him coming on. He not only turns it monthly, he takes it to the top of the charts. You've heard me talk about Frank Miller many, many times. Today we're going to share in his words directly, directly Frank Miller's words from this uh, in-depth, probably 20-plus page interview that he did with the Comics Journal discussing his very young career in comics and discussing his impact uh, thus far in comics, his influences, his inspirations, and his approach to how he created and crafted the daredevil uh, Electra saga that that rocketed him to the top now the interesting part of of uh this comics journal as i was going back through it is 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 in the news section this entire comics journal issue really is heavy heavy uh heavily influenced on 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 frank miller he's 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 mentioned even when he's not the topic Comics Journal's News Watch again before the days of the interview. We as fans would wait for magazines like Comics Journal, later Comic Scene, Amazing Heroes, which was a sister publication uh, by Fantagraphics, who was the publisher of Comics Journal. Comics Journal was the hard-hitting sixty minutes of comic books. Again, the, mo- the the most in-depth Amazing Heroes when they launched had a more poppy, uh, a more kind of uh, just just kind of. State of the hits to the talking points. You could just go off on huge tangents in these comics journals interview, and, and and thank God each and every artist did. Uh, I, I've I've shared with you an amazing Todd McFarlane uh, comics journal interview where the publisher really goes after him, and then later on I shared with you recently. Yes, I have books and comics dropping at my desk as I do this podcast. It is raw in every sense of the word. When uh Gary Groth comics journal did their interview with Barry Windsor Smith. Again, I think I shared this with you guys recently, Barry and, and and Gary were both laughing at how Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and all of us, myself included, you know, we, we actually take ourselves seriously. I mean, these are great interviews. They're great. They really um, can be a kick in the pants. But the, the, the news section was always hugely informative to us. This is where we got our news. No internet. Not in 1982. There's no dial up. There's no Okay, none of that's going on. This is it. You got your 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 news from print journalism from print publications. The giant banner is Marvel announces royalty plan will boost some creators income. By thousands of dollars. It says less than a month after DC Comics. Has announced its royalties p- payment plan. Marvel Vice President Publishing. Michael Hobson. Announced Marvel's matching plan. One virtually identical to DC's. It jumps into the particulars. It talks about all the different breakdowns. It's really fascinating. It gives you a chart so you can see. And 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 this plan. That both these companies embrace. Is, is why comic creators. Are are. Our standard of living went up. I am grateful to this system. I knew that it came out during this time. I did not know it, not know it was day and dated in January because it says beginning in January. I am holding the January issue of the comics journal that is reporting this beginning in January. Okay, Marvel is going to instigate on its books a royalty uh, a royalty plan, and it breaks down plotter, penciler, writer, you know, scriptor, uh, finisher, creator. Okay, creator royalty. This is this is the, the key to what I was looking to do myself is uh, in, in in the creator royalties. Is when you create a character, you get a percentage of them. It, it breaks it all down in its chart here. But DC DC Comics, their uh, quote as to why they went to a royalty program was. Uh, what, what was was really interesting g- given given the fact that they invoke frank miller's name in fact uh dc's dick giordano okay who was uh their managing editor dc's managing editor at the time he uh in regards to the royalties he cited the excitement that frank miller had created over this one struggling book he says uh We've added a new royalty system, which should hopefully encourage some Frank Miller type stuff, some Frank Miller type stuff. Okay. They were trying to incentivize so that you wouldn't just stick with the existing hit books. That's what this royalty program was about. You wouldn't just stick with the hit books that you would uh, maybe have incentive that, Hey man, if you kick those sales up you're going to get a big uh, a big percentage. They actually, the most interesting thing I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to share amidst all of the commentary in this 1982 announcement that Marvel and DC are, are, are coming out with the basically the equivalent of the same royalty system. They take an issue of Thor. Uh, looks like, one, one, geez, three, let me see. Uh, I'm looking at the cover price, but I can't quite make it out. But it says uh, the total... Uh, sales of Thor on this title. This is pre-Walt Simonson, is 145,000 copies. If the January on-sale issue sells that many copies, the incentive payments will be figured as follows. First, it does not kick in until a hundred after 100,000 units. So at 101,000 units, boom, you start to kick in. So the total royalties that are going to be paid out on that are 45 are or, or are on the 45,000 copies that exceed the 100,000 limit. And if at 145,000 units, 45,000 units will be eligible for royalties. The lead and only story in the October issue of Thor was drawn by Keith Pollard from a plot by Doug Mensch and inked by Chick, uh, uh, Chick Stone, also scripted by Doug Minch. It says here, because the lead character in Thor was created before January 1982, there will be no payment to a creator. Therefore, the incentive payments break down as follows. Uh, half percent to Doug Mensch as plotter, a one percent to Doug Mensch as writer, a uh one and a half percent to Keith Pollard because he did breakdowns then a one percent to the Inker. Now that that goes back and forth. If if they were full pencils, Keith Pollard would have gotten two percent and the Inker got points 0.5 There is no creator uh incentive on this issue it says. So Doug's incentive payment uh, is 1.5% of the $0.60 cent cover price, or 0.9 cents per copy, per times 45,000 uh, units, and he would get a check for $405. Keith Pollard would get also $405. Chickstone will get $270. Again, this is one of the middle-tier books because they go on and say that books like X-Men and then Daredevil are now exceeding 300,000 copies. So exceeding 300,000 copies, you're now taking those numbers and doing it by 200,000 units, those same breakdowns. So this was a huge deal. Again, I know uh, it's all in this Frank Miller, great Daredevil uh, cover on, on, on Comics Journal number 70. But I mean, Frank Miller is so impactful the time that he is uh, invoked in the open in, in the, in the freaking news story about the royalties because <clears throat> they, they want people to to stick with titles. I'll close up this this section of the news watch, which is which is two full pages. Nineteen eighty two, this giant royalty system that would change my life. It will change my. Life. It is really. It is literally the reason that guys like me uh, got big seven figure checks from Marvel. When we hit those giant sales, sales pinnacles in in the 90s, <clears throat> Jim Shooter says, uh, look, one title in particular of Marvel's, the X-Men sells 300,000 units a month, a month. Several are well over the 200,000 uh, unit threshold writers and pencilers of those titles uh, that sell over two hundred thousand. In fact, will be pulling in well over a thousand dollars each in royalties on a monthly comic, which will uh, leap their total income and add twelve thousand dollars a year to their bottom line. It's a big deal in nineteen eighty-two. He also explained that a middle-of-the-road book like the Dazzler, which sells better than all but three of DC's titles, um, will have a uh, will have a a nice breakthrough. As a direct market only title, uh, anything over a hundred thousand is going to again kick in and give you extra extra royalties. Uh, you know the, the the entire concern is for both Marvel and DC was to keep people, uh, keep creators. And I'm reading this directly from the article who would traditionally head out of comics once their peak had been reached. Uh, this will this will have an impact on people hanging around because the pool of money is now uh you know much much more attractive again reading it says in effect the rule suddenly makes it much more desirable to work on pop um it, this is the bad the, and, and this is why the Avengers book in my opinion kind of crumpled uh the rule suddenly makes it more desirable to work on popular titles uh in fact if an artist had a choice now between doing an issue with the x men or, or Dazzler the financial rem- rem- <clears throat> rem- rem- <laughs> remuneration remuneration would be the same now however that decision which rests with the editor could mean a difference of several thousands of dollars this means editors of popular titles will suddenly be feeling much greater pressure from creators eager to tap the extra money working on a top-selling book with an automatic you know kick uh in the past creators have often preferred to work on middle of the road titles simply because there was less pressure attached to working on them and uh you It happened right around this time that everybody suddenly wanted to only work on top tier books and books, the Avengers, which was in the like 1974 to 1980, attracting A-list talent suddenly got left behind as all that A-list talent. The new guys that would walk through the door, the Frank Millers, the Paul Smiths, uh, eventually the Art Adams who came in a year after this announcement, they would want to work on new new X-Men titles, mutant selling titles as the mutant family expanded. Again, I've done dedicated um, podcasts on how Marvel figured out how going twice monthly on X-Men was better than any spinoff. There are all number of X-Men podcasts that really get to the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of why these decisions were made. The books were so popular, they could actually maintain a greater uh, circulation, releasing them twice a month as they eventually did every summer every fall with the x-men so royalties this was a big deal but i I really want to key in on that one fact where flipping again here where dick giordano says we are hoping this incentivize some frank miller stuff the next frank miller to do his thing so with that i'm going to get right into this uh frank miller 1982 interview and really get into the mind of a master but before i do that i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna give you a caveat frank miller has become uh semi polarizing not for his beliefs i'm not even going to address that uh there were there were some uh ongoing concern after 9-11 uh with with a very uh harsh kind of uh batman story he wanted to do in the wake of 9-11 with batman battling terrorists and some of his views were uh split split the audience down the middle uh liberals found them you know very offensive conservatives less so he was eventually not able to do it DC pulled the plug they didn't want to do it they didn't want the heat and he went and published it himself with all brand new characters but and and it's a pretty harsh uh pretty harsh tale I enjoy it I enjoy it very much but I realize that everything that Frank does has not been for everyone for a very long time when he left Daredevil before he went to Batman he did Ronan Ronan was polarizing because people wanted him to do superheroes you're going to find out in this interview that You know, he has a wide range of tastes. He loves science fiction. He worked that out in his Ronin book. He then goes and just completely transforms Batman, goes back for a second stint at Daredevil in the the late 80s. That's both the Dark Knight and, and the Daredevil stints. And then eventually recreates himself again with Sin City, which he does basically for the entirety of the 90s. Right now, as I bring this to you, it's the 25th anniversary of his work on 300, where he took... The Battle of Thermopylae, the historic Battle of Thermopylae, and uh, really, I'm going to say, machoed it up, hit all the right notes. Um, King Leonidas, the battle between King Leonidas and Xerxes to hold, you know, with, with, with the mighty 300 to to hold their position at the base of the hot gates made for this incredible miniseries that Frank wrote and, and illustrated, and it came out of nowhere. No one saw him doing this. He's just... He's, he, You just cannot put him in a box. He will always shatter your expectations, do something you don't expect, and in the process, electrify his fan base and really comic books at large. So it's interesting to peek into his mind with this interview, which we're going to do, which, uh, which gives you a lot of his thought processes when he was 24 years old, but I want to say about Frank being polarized. And I'm not even talking about his beliefs. Again, we've covered that. That's not what I'm addressing. As he has gotten older and overcome severe health issues, which really plagued him, I'd say, 2011, 12, 13, 14. He was coming out of it around 2015. He was getting healthier. Some of his drawings were more raw. Some of his drawings seem a little more underground. They, they, they seem somewhat more uh, in an R. did an entire podcast on R. Crumb. R. Crumb, like, did a very popular retelling of the entire book of Genesis. By a major publisher about a decade ago, I did an entire uh, podcast on it about 16 months ago. You should check it out if you want to go through the library. But we have done all manner of, of, of topics. It's not just X-Men. It's not just Batman. We really try and get it into, in, into the teeth of so many different genres and important movements uh, that, that, that the comic book in, the comic book industry has represented over all these many years, especially since my journey with it since I was seven years old. Frank's drawings suddenly uh, to the TikTok generation, to the younger generation, they said, man, how is this guy ever popular? He's ugly, he's ugly, this stuff is ugly. Oh, I don't like it, ugh. Oh. And you hear disparagement after disparagement after disparagement. I, I, I left out Wolverine, his seminal, and there's a podcast for that too. All, all of the huge Eastern influences, uh, the, the 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 best-selling novel *Shogun*, how that played a part in Wolverine but that miniseries does not hit unless Frank goes I'll do it with you I, I I begin that podcast telling you how Chris Claremont had to talk him into it go there listen to it get all those stories um that that I was really able to peel back uh the curtain on on so much of that and and sew together a bunch of different uh instances and historical facts one thing about this podcast is you're going to see today I bring receipts all the time I back it up uh People, there was somebody. I, I it makes me smile because I, I can't imagine how frustrated it would be uh to have characterized somebody like your host here as as I, I've been to, I, I've been you know people in my profession, my own peer group were like, oh, life Liefeld just he smelled money in comics and he got into it. Couldn't be further than the truth. Ridiculous, lifelong, passionate obsession with comic books. There, there, there's a part in here that I really relate to Frank, but his drawings, his The way he's illustrating stuff now, which I totally dig. He did a bunch of mini-comics for Dark Knight 3 that came with the actual editions. Those mini-comics are some of my favorite Frank work ever. It's just I love the raw gestures, the storytelling, the boldness. Um, He's a master storyteller. He has never lost that ability to rock a page, to design a page, to um, connect with an audience. But the polish... Uh, is not maybe what you preferred it to be. It it doesn't look like Dark Knight, which didn't look like Daredevil, which didn't look like Ronan, which didn't look like Wolverine, but they all look like Frank Miller, but they all had a different polish. They all had a different rendering technique that he put on it. Ronan's rendering technique was way different than what he utilized in Daredevil, different than what he utilized in Dark Knight. He went full gear shift for Sin City, and then again on 300, and now he's in a different realm. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I would equivalent, equivalent, I think I just made that up, I would equate, also equivalent, that that sounds like a fun word, I would equate Frank Miller's career to Steven Spielberg's career. The Steven Spielberg that I grew up with was mired in Alfred Hitchcock technique, influence, uh, shadows, light, uh, drama, thrill. That is the Steven Spielberg that gave us Jaws, that gave us, and even more importantly and more impressive, and the one that keeps getting lost in his resume is, resume is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's a real thinker, but it is a thriller, and it, and it does not lack for spectacle, but it is a tremendously personal movie, but it was in the hardcore sci-fi fantasy phase of Spielberg's life where he really wanted to deliver those those genres to us and, and, and show us his twist on them. He had a huge Alfred Hitchcock, later David Lean. I mean, I, you see many different influences in the way Steven Spielberg was depicting his earliest work from Jaws to Close Encounters to E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. Even towards the end of the 80s, he would veer off, he would do always, okay? Um, after a couple stumbles, he rallied and 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 gave you Jurassic Park, which was a giant mega explosion, huge hit that reset him as a giant blockbuster uh, director to be reckoned with. But then that same year, obviously, he did Schindler's List, a much more personal, much more intimate. uh, It couldn't be further from the spectacle of Jurassic Park. My last period that I loved Spielberg was Minority Report and War of the Worlds. I think Minority Report is is one of his top five works ever. He is working it. He is uh, really... Just not only working the cinematography, the storytelling, the pacing, he's working the technology, uh, the characters. Uh, It's darker. It's a very dark movie. It it is one of my all-time favorite Steven Spielberg movies. But I bring up these, uh, you know, War War of the Worlds, by the way, has the spectacle. Both of them obviously have Tom Cruise. I would pick Minority Report over War of the Worlds in a a heartbeat, in a flash. Uh, Always. It's just... uh, I think Minority Report is just a brilliant work. Um, he really flexes so much of his directorial knowledge and abilities and skill that he's accumulated in. I mean, I, I think that's like a 2001, 2002 movie. I mean, it's very early 2000s. It's fantastic. Uh, but again, it is not the Steven Spielberg that we've been getting of late. The Warhorse Steven Spielberg, the, uh, the, the Fableman's Steven Spielberg. You know, even Ready Player One, which I know, tried to dance with with themes that he he used to flex constantly, and uh, th- these movies do not reflect the early Steven Spielberg. They're a different style altogether. He still obviously is a master storyteller, but it it, it you know to his credit, he doesn't want to uh, he doesn't want to keep. Telling the same old story again, which more power to him, absolute respect all along, you know, um, you know, just, uh, the guy has earned the right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But the Steven Spielberg stylistically that he represents to us today is as night and day as the Steven Spielberg, uh, as the Frank Miller of, of of 2023 as opposed to the 1980, 1979, 1978 Frank Miller, okay? I, I I think, again, just because you encounter a talent at a certain time, it does not define the, the broad scope of their work, especially when they've been doing this for decades. West Side Story, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Audiences weren't there for it. They didn't want to relive that movie the same way Steven did he he shot the hell out of it. it's brilliant the choreography um, all of the presentation I absolutely love West side Story but it is without a doubt that the audiences aren't showing up in the way that they used to for just anything he did because anything Steven Spielberg did was a giant event and as much as you liked Fablemans it is not Close Encounters I do not think it is on the same par as as his Minority Report uh, I mean I I just again. 20, Twenty years back may be my absolute favorite period for Steven Spielberg because I'm going to tell you right now that uh, <clears throat> that the Steven Spielberg that also uh, delivered. I mean, and 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 I mean literally, like delivered in spades. Now, do I think *Bridge of Spies* is great? I do, but I think the Steven Spielberg that gave us. Uh just trying to think of that. Munich. Munich. The Steven Spielberg that gave us Munich, that gave us Catch Me If You Can, okay? Uh, that gave us Minority Report is uh is not the guy giving us the Fablemans and West Side story. Not at this time. Not at not at this time. But man, I, I I'm happy that Steven Spielberg exists and that he's making movies. And with that, I pivot back to frank miller he's not the same guy that did daredevil he's not uh but but that doesn't mean his work is less exciting to me it may be less refined he's not the same guy he's not this 24 year old that we're going to read about and we're going to start reading about him right now as we get into this comics journal uh issue and i'm going to read the the the, one of the editors of the magazine uh interviewed frank and i'm going to tell you this 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 uh his the editor is Dwight Decker, it's like a comic book name, Dwight Decker, and Dwight and Frank's interview reads more like a casual conversation. It's it's a very very uh, just back and forth. Uh, were there questions I would have asked that didn't get asked? Yes, I would have asked. Uh, I would have I would have asked stuff about his dramatic. Change in the way that he depicted Kingpin and changing Kingpin from like a D-list Spider-Man villain to like an A-list Marvel villain, period, on par with like Magneto and Doctor Doom at the time, because that happened. But none of that is in here. But this is a very interesting back and forth. I'm gonna read his preface. It says Frank Miller, an interview with the young, critically acclaimed writer artist of Daredevil. From time to time, a truly great new artist will explode upon the Marvel scene like a bombshell, announced the credit box for Daredevil 158. That went on to confidently predict newcomer lanky Frank Miller is just such an artist. For once, the overheated bullpen ballyhoo proved, ac- proved accurate. Frank Miller did indeed explode upon the scene like a bombshell. His work on a second-rate superhero that no one had ever paid much attention to would soon attract notice and even a rapidly growing cult following. And to do it, Miller had to work against every established convention of contemporary superhero comic books in a sense, building the very new by returning to the very old. Frank Miller ignored the Silver Age rulebook that said superheroes had to be bright and shiny and set in fantasy stories resembling nothing so much as big-time wrestling matches fought out amid gimmicks and settings borrowed from science fiction. Once Miller began writing Daredevil as well as drawing it, the book became much darker and much grimmer, recalling the superheroes of the 40s whose stories were largely crime dramas heavily influenced by the B-movies of the day. Frank Miller is, an, is astonishingly young, and his work has been appearing regularly for less than three years. Daredevil 158 is dated May 1979. Yet for his fans and fellow professionals, they both regard his work with respect and appreciation and perhaps even a little awe. I've watched Frank Miller's rise with more than a little amazement since the very beginning. I first encountered him in 1975 when I joined the comics-oriented amateur press association APA 5. And APA is essentially a club, typically limited to a membership of 40 or so people, through which the members exchange copies of their personal fanzines or APAzines. APAzines' wildly function as open letters to the other members. But often showcased the publisher's creativity as well. Frank Miller was already a member of APA Five when I came to it, and it may have been prophetic that his APA zine was called over <clears throat> was called overkill. Miller couldn't have been more, <clears throat> excuse me, than eighteen at the time, and already his art and writing showed signs of a restless energy building up inside of him, too volatile to be contained for long. From the discussions that went on in the APA, Miller seemed attracted to philosophers of the harsher sort like Friedrich Nietzsche and Anne Rand, heralds of a stern and austere individualism that was anything but hedonistic or self-indulgent. Call it karma, an amateur comic strip he was writing and drawing was filled with in-jokes obvious to anyone who had read much Rand, but his reading was surprisingly wide for someone still in high school. I recall that he once objected with considerable heat when I ventured upon the opinion that Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic theories were largely worthless flapdoodle. Flapdoodle or not, Miller has found them anything but worthless, as Peter Sanderson points out in his review of Daredevil 180 and 181. Miller's conscious use of Freudian psychological symbolism has added considerably to the book's depth and power. Unlike, Unlike most comic fans, he had little, if any, interest in science fiction or fantasy call it karma was an urban crime drama apparently inspired by tv cop shows and mystery novels even when miller's work had a feeling approach different from that of other fan artists and writers it was only because he was mining a pot a vein of popular culture few comic fans had interest in the <clears throat> the frank miller of apa five was shaky in his grasp of human anatomy and proportions and he couldn't draw a pretty girl to save his life but he was propelled by an almost ferocious drive to tell stories his art was raw but seething with energy when miller drew a claw hammer smashing into someone's head chips of bone flew off the page he would refine his technique later but the primal vitality of his work was there from the start the rest of the story is that miller eventually dropped out of apple five because of too many other professional commitments and i lost track of him for a couple years when i heard of him again he was drawing from marvel and you pretty much know what has happened to him ever since. I interviewed Frank Miller in October of 1981, just before he moved from Queens to Manhattan. Uh, Although I had only met him briefly in person once before, it was in many ways like getting together with an old friend I hadn't seen in a very long time. Miller remembered his fan days with a certain amount of wistfulness, but they seemed long ago and far away in relation to what he is doing now. In person, Frank Miller is tall and lean, reserved, and even shy. After some hesitation at the beginning, he opened up once the interview was rolling and proved to be quite articulate, especially when talking about his ideas and his work. He is deeply committed to what he does, and it may well be that his sit-on Daredevil, so highly acclaimed already, is just the beginning of a long and brilliant career. The interview was conducted and transcribed by Dwight Decker and edited and approved by Frank Miller. Okay that 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 is quite that is quite the intro ladies and gentlemen that is quite uh you know quite 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 um uh you know maybe the best preface to an interview ever, i've ever ever read now in the preface the interview where decker mentions uh an rand and and i'm going to skip a lot of the fountainhead Ayn rand stuff uh that they invoke in here because it never really lands it's just kind of them popping off with each other but it does sometimes take up several pages uh but it is again an in-depth interview where where frank is at the time and again i mean that that, that part about like we think he's going to have an amazing career i'm pretty Safe to say, I think I think we landed uh exactly on that. Frank has had maybe the most exceptional career. Frank walked so the rest of us could run. He is probably the first breakout rock star superstar of the comic book era. Sure, there was Stan and Steve Ditko and and, and and Jack Kirby among all others. Neil Adams says he was one of the first fan favorites, but because of what happened with Daredevil, that then what what, what then happened with Batman, the resume, the body of work, Frank was being featured in Rolling Stone in mainstream media. He he got a, a next level of, of acclaim. Robocop, when it came out in 1987, was seen to be extremely influenced by Daredevil. The filmmakers conceded, the writers that they were. That's why they hired Frank himself for the sequels. So Frank uh, was on a tear. Now, early on in the interview... Uh, I think this is interesting. The interviewer asks, is it, be- is it possible you can become so abstract in your art that you would divorce yourself from reality altogether? Would the reader be reacting solely to lines on paper instead of visually, uh, instead of visualizing real people doing things? Frank says, yes, that is very common. We are only a few steps away from funny animal drawings. This is no way intended to be disparaging to what we do, but we are doing 20th century hieroglyphics. I really dwelled on this. I mean cave paintings. He he he's not too far off the mark. It's just, you know, some people like other people's cave paintings and admire them more than other people's cave paintings. But at the end of the day, we're telling stories with pictures, and that is what Frank is really invoking here. And he will talk later how he has abandoned some backgrounds to go for shapes. And the thing about Frank, and I was able to talk to F- Frank Miller in the nineties, getting picking his 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 uh His head, he did some work for me. So I was able to connect with him. I went to a couple different shops where he was signing locally and hung out with him. And again, Frank was always very he just doesn't know how to be anything but open and honest. And he would say, Rob, I moved away from basically the candy coating. It was all about shapes and form and impact. And you can see it in his work. He he you know, he walks he walks the talk. He's he's really just an amazing draftsman and an amazing visual visual is this but again he's basically saying you know we're we're just doing at this time 20th century hieroglyphics the guy says have you had any formal art training are you self-taught he says neither laughter i've had some classes in art but i've not had formal regimented training i've probably learned most of what i know about drawing and reading from working in the comic book field during my first year in comics i actually produced very little but i took in a lot then Decker says, have you actually done life drawing? And Frank Miller says, oh yeah, whenever I whenever I can. It's not often, unfortunate, but it's a bad habit to get into uh, not to continue with life drawing. It's very easy to slip out of. Every once in a while, I've got to tell myself to get into another class with a model. He said, you said you stopped reading comic books when you were in your early teens. What brought you back? Frank says, I wanted to work in them, so I had to re-familiarize my, myself with the form. He does say early in the interview that he hadn't been reading comics for a long time. He left them in his teens. So I can only imagine him going back, looking at the stuff Will Eisner was doing, Gil Kane, John Buscema, the people who were right prior to him, and absorbing them and helping him hone uh, his own craft. Frank is, if anything, uh, this is my commentary, very competitive guy. I think throughout his throughout his career, he's been a very competitive guy. It's why he is as successful as he is. But let's continue with more of this interview. He When he says uh when they ask him if he's they they get down into the nitty-gritty and ask him about science fiction uh he he says he's more drawn to science fantasy like he 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 uh compares the work of Larry Niven and his his stories and he just says he he wasn't feeling that stuff he he wants to have some fantasy worked in i think you can see that in his ronin work that it's not just straight science fiction he wanted science fantasy arthur c clark he said is a little too you know uh heavy on the sci-fi for him now throughout this Interview. There are pictures of his APA five drawings. I've told you guys. I came to know George Perez and many others uh, in my career as a high school, you know, student who came upon multiple different APPAs Am- amateur press associations. I was part of those people who, who would you know print fifty, sixty copies, share them, write stories, uh, draw pinups, draw sequential art, and share them with your fellow APA um, a- a- APA members. So it's interesting to see that Frank was part of an APA. And again, there are pages from Call It Karma. And uh, in the Call It Karma strip, there's a character called Electra. It's pretty funny. He is definitely, you can see the shades of who Frank Miller is going to become in each and every one of these sequential pages. They're, they're really fascinating. Again, Comics Journal, number 70, Winter edition, 1982, January 1982. Um, if you can come upon it, it's a gem. Later on uh they're talking about the settings and where Daredevil is set and the interviewer says i can see that new york is a much more effective setting for a superhero like daredevil than smallville would be for superboy frank says right so far in the series i haven't taken daredevil out of the city because it functions as a universe for him almost any kind of building that i want almost any kind of person is available to me there uh, i can't do that with smallville smallville isn't exactly cosmopolitan also new york is a big enough city with enough going wrong in it that daredevil has to <clears throat> that Daredevil has enough going against him to make it interesting and to make him work harder at what he does. Uh, when when then Decker says, What got you into comic book fandom, specifically Apple five He says it was through a fan, a uh, friend of mine named Walt Stoling, who uh was a student teacher when I was in high school, and he shared them with me and got me into it. He says, After several years of fanzine work and trying your wings, how did you go about trying to break into the business professionally? Frank Miller says a friend of me introduced me to Neil Adams he looked at my work and he was heavily critical of it and I'm going to tell you right now 2015 I am at dinner with Neil Adams in Cleveland for the Wizard World Cleveland show and this is when Neil Adams says you know Frank used to come all all the time he came by the studio and 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 you know his his, his work was you know just just sort of atrocious he just didn't have it and I'd, I'd, I'd tell him, work on this, work on that, work on these figures, work on these faces. And he just kept coming back and coming back and improving and improving. And so Neil really talks favorably of how responsive Frank was to criticism. So it's interesting hearing Frank in this interview uh, invoke it from his side. He says, I would go to Neil's studio every couple months, showing him work and getting criticism and going back and working on it. Eventually, though, I got too impatient. And I realized that in order to break into comics, I would need to make more of a commitment so i physically moved into manhattan and uh with very little money and started making myself an actual nuisance at the comic book publishers now again you had both marvel and dc offices in manhattan at this time you know now they're split and post pandemic i'm not exactly what either office fit, looks like a lot of editors are just working from their house and and and, and packaging books and getting them to the printer um and i, I i'm not sure that that marvel has gone back in Uh, regularly to the offices. I know a lot of people are still working remotely. Now that'll perhaps change in the future. DC is obviously in Burbank and I'm even less certain of what they're doing. He says uh that his first work that he got published was Gold Key, did Twilight Zone, and he did Twilight Zone stories. He says, I don't have them with me. I don't have copies. I can't show them with you. Uh Decker says, and Frank Miller says, don't 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 go to the trouble of looking them up. They're not very good. Um, because <clears throat> the interviewer invokes, well, collectors are, are going to want to get these. I'm going to tell you right now, I've never seen these Twilight Zones that he speaks of. So, Frank, uh, when asked by the interviewer what his next step was, he said, well, I uh, I met Paul Levitz at DC Comics who got me to do some weird war stories. Also, very, very interesting. Mark Silvestri, uh, when he started at, at DC Comics, was doing war stories and horror stories in their war and horror anthology stories. So, this was always a great entry level. So Frank says that uh at one point he was um while he was doing his Word War his weird war story, his work from Marvel came along and at one point he was doing work for both companies. Uh <clears throat> the interviewer says, Were you going through hard times at that point? Frank says, and this is very resonant, Frank Miller, I went for days without food, without eating. It was the whole down and out in New York scene. I was existing without a place to live there were months of near starvation. I didn't know much of anyone in the city. It was pretty rough until I started getting work regularly. I really dwelled on this when I reread this last night. I mean, this is a guy being as honest as he can, the hunger that he had that I've, I've spoken in a recent podcast about the flame and the flame that burns. Frank had the flame, you know, who knows where he was sleeping. Did he sit in an all night diner? You know, was there an all night coffee shop? Was he was he was he going from lobby to lobby in hotels? This is like a really nuts and bolts. The Frank Miller that you know now was this Frank Miller as he ascended. Days without food, the whole down and out scene, months of near starvation. Okay, just just something to think about. Decker said, "When did you get your first real assignment? Was it Daredevil?" Frank goes, "No, I did two issues of the Spider Man titles, which guest starred Daredevil, and I requested the Daredevil assignment." After I turned the Spider-Man pages in, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief, liked them quite a bit. Gene Colan, the artist of Daredevil, was begging to get off Daredevil. He was very tired of doing the, the, the book. As I understand, uh, he was ready to go. I was ready and waiting. And that's what a lot of just getting an assignment is, he says. It's being there when when it becomes available. It was a huge gamble on Marvel's part at the time. And I had hardly proven that I could handle a regular commitment he says when you first took over daredevil this is the interview there was some mention in the fan press of your care and research if a script called for a waterfront you would go down to the waterfront with your sketch pad and you draw it frank frank says oh yeah that was something neil adams taught me go check my facts before i start drawing he said that many many times there's no way to draw something unless you have a fairly good idea of how it works and how it functions so yes i did go down to the waterfront so again these are really cool he then talks about the setting of manhattan And he says, uh, I recently did a fight scene in Daredevil where I started in Matt's brownstone and carried it across upper Manhattan. I violated so many facts about upper Manhattan. I threw in an elevated train where there wasn't any. And I made it much more elevated than any elevated train I've ever seen. I converted it to what would make my sequence the most dramatic. Uh, Decker says, wouldn't that confuse and disorient the reader who is in position to know the reality of the situation? Which, come on, that's a weak question. It's comic books. We're warping all the time. Frank says, well, it might. But to the vast majority of people, New York is the Empire State, the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, and the Brooklyn Bridge. If you're faithful in depicting that, they'll believe anything. The comics that I grew up on and loved for their New York material were by Steve Ditko. But when I investigated New York rooftops, I discovered that they don't quite look the way Steve Ditko drew them. Details are very different. He probably operated strictly from memory. He certainly converted the details to his style and made them more suitable for his purposes. The point is, they worked on me. When I first read them, I want to be able to deal with them in emblems that, well, in order for me to manipulate them skillfully enough so that my New York will be convincing and serve my purposes. And a side note here, George Perez, his New York City had the tiniest streets and he created buildings and structures and shapes that would never be in any city. It was kind of like part Buck Rogers, 21st century. This is when in the seventies, when he was drawing the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and he would... Used to say like I draw cereal boxes stacked stacked next to each other with cool shapes on them. He, that's George word for word to my face. So again, Frank really talking about how he warps the city to suit his purposes, and he's going to continue and 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 uh, and and go deeper on this here. He says I've been working on making my drawings serve the pose uh, of moving the story or telling the story. I found that a lot of the more detailed and well composed pencils that I was doing was obscuring the story. They stood out as individual illustrations but did not serve the pur- purpose of the greater storytelling. I've been trying to organize the background material better. This is who Frank Miller would become. More about shapes and gesture and impact than again individual individual renderings. In that meeting one of those, one of the long phone calls that I had with Frank in the mid-90s and he again has said to me, he goes, Rob, I had to compete with John Byrne and Terry Austin doing Uncanny X-Men and I knew I couldn't draw like that. I couldn't Make that happen. So I had to stay in my own lane and maximize my own strengths. And he says, "Continue to do what you do and do what you do best, because the minute you try and run somebody else's race, you're going to get run over." And and I still remember Frank saying that to me as clearly as it was 1995. And I think Frank is giving you an insight in 1982 into how that process evolved, how his thinking evolved. <clears throat> he says, uh, he says that they that they have a discussion. Uh, briefly, uh, of of uh, Daredevil's radar sense, but then they get to the actual swinging through the city on a billy club, and Frank says, "Yeah, I took that away. I wanted to remove as many references within the Daredevil character and depiction from Spider Man and Batman as I as I possibly could. I pushed the buildings much closer together so that he could actually jump from them visually." The guy, the interviewer, then says, "Doesn't that limit Daredevil's mobility? He doesn't have a car and he can't fly." he'd have to take the subway just to get across town. He goes, Frank Frank Miller says, first off, let's establish the swinging business. This swinging business doesn't work. That's one of the things when I researched. Not that I got on a rope and swung, but no one can swing across town. The logistics of that just don't work. You don't have to do it at a diagonal to the street or or you'd run into buildings and you'd have to continually get lower with each and every swing. It's a preposterous business of how Batman throws his rope and then swings up. None of that really works. So I think it's... Very unbelievable. Uh, he, he says, I think it's at least as believable that a man can climb up the side of a building and run along their rooftops and jump from one one building to the to the, to the the other as to the way Batman swings. That's how I'm doing it. The guy says, so you're saying your Daredevil climbs up the side of buildings just like Harold Lloyd? And he says, that's exactly what he does. The interviewer says, you spoke of Spider-Man and Batman when Daredevil first came out. It seemed to me an attempt was being made to capitalize on the success of Spider-Man with something that was almost but not quite like Spidey. And this is just stepping out of the interview for a minute. This is the longstanding years going, uh, criticism of how they depicted daredevil. That he was always a second rate Spider-Man. He says, uh, Frank Miller goes, that's what it became. Unfortunately, the first few issues, particularly the run of issues that Wally Wood drew and Stanley scripted, had an approach to the, to the character that Stan would later lose. He played up the blindness and the fact that Matt is a lawyer and made him something special. I deliberately tried to remove references to him, uh, to remove references from the Spider-Man character. I also think that there are things about Daredevil's personality that keep him from being anything like Spider-Man. He is not a whiner. He doesn't do what he does because he is guilty about something. The motivations are different. Moving further through the interview, uh, the interviewer, Decker, then says uh <clears throat> the body count in your Daredevil is very high what do you think of the criticism that there is too much violence in your book which when I read this like nobody I knew thought that there was too much violence in Daredevil the the, the comic book was was the epitome of smackdown takedown it was uh just action packed exactly the way we loved it so I thought this was kind of a funny question to be asking at the time. But Frank says, in response to, what do you think of the criticism that there's too much violence in the book? He says, violence is the theme of the book. Violence is the theme of the book. It probably is the most violent comic book being published right now. But it seems to be a setting and a character that calls for. it. Part of Daredevil's appeal to me is that he loses one fight out of every three. What makes him a hero is that he is beaten occasionally and he comes back. The guy says, one scene that was pointed out to me as a case of gratuitous violence was the one where Daredevil smashes Turk. Uh, Turk was a guy in Hell's Kitchen, a a gang member who was a semi-informant for Daredevil and others. Says a case of gratuitous violence was the one where Daredevil smashes uh, through Turk's windshield just to get at him. And in the end, all he wants is to ask him a question. Frank says, yeah, okay, I may have overdid it in that scene. I take the blame for that. That went too far. But the exception of that, I don't think he's been overly brutal. Those opponents have been equally as brutal. Decker says, Right, like Bullseye, Electra. I was just thinking that. He says, That scene where Electra takes on eight men at once and kills or maims all of them. He Frank Miller says, Yes, that is on purpose. I introduced her as a character that was designed to get as much sympathy as possible from the audience. And this is a great statement, you guys. Frank then says, and ever since, every appearance since, I have been trying to make the audience like her less. thought that was great. Introduced her to get as much sympathy as possible. And then appearance by appearance, he has been trying to make the audience like her less. He says, what is your reasoning in creating Electra?" Frank Miller says, I wanted Daredevil to have a female antagonist like Sans Serif in the spirit. In fact, I ripped off the first Sans Serif story to do the first Electra story. Rather than just regurgitating it, though, I put a harsher edge on the conflict. I had there be many more consequences to the fact that he was living with a contradiction and that he loved a woman and she was his enemy. Electra is definitely one of the bad guys in my strip. Love that comment. He says, uh, the interviewer says, well, I think she falls under the category of noble villain. Frank says, well, the feeling I've been trying to get across is that she's betrayed something. She was meant to be something much better than she is. Again, they go to Ayn Rand's Fountainhead, like Gail Winnand in Ayn Rand's Fountainhead. He goes, Frank says, to some degree. I find what her existence does to Daredevil particularly fascinating because it puts him in a position of having heart and head against one another. A position of having heart and head against one another. Decker says, uh, the interviewer says, can you love someone who has betrayed her own principles and stands against yours? Frank goes, and can you create, can you control your own reaction? That's another question I'm dealing with. Decker says, would it tempt him to give up his principles for her sake? Frank says, this is all the stuff I've tried to use, questions I've tried to bring up. That's where the stories come from. I think that putting her into the book did the book quite a bit of good, and it helped me to find Daredevil. The interviewer states, and this is, I think, a a very apropos question for the time. He goes, there are comments that this book has become Electra, and Daredevil is the the co-star. Frank says, the reaction has been generally very good to that as far as I've been able to tell. Still, even if she were to appear for 19 pages out of the 22 in the book, her character is of interest only as she relates to Daredevil. On her own, she does not support the feature. He goes, but you did an Elektra solo story for Bizarre Adventures. He says, yes, and if you'll notice, I kept it very, very simple. It was mainly just a storytelling exercise for me. He goes, was that just you trying out a new toy with the craft tint? Craft tint was like a duotone... texture that you could invoke with different water and different um chemicals Howard shaken used it to great effect on how um the American flag strip that we have discussed on this podcast in the Howard the Howard shaken uh podcast dedicated podcast about about Howard and American flag and the, and the key point at that time was I said that I believe American flag is incredibly influential to all of Frank Miller's work and the duotone and the this this actual paper that i'm that i'm speaking of the craft hint is something that that howard had been doing prior to frank and that short story is in the electra omnibus that marvel uh, reprinted it was in i think a bizarre adventures it was a cool little for the fans we didn't see it coming she's painted on the cover with a bunch of other characters you open it up you get an actual frank miller penciled and inked and written story he actually inked that one um it's a cool story of her just taking on an assignment killing a very rich wealthy man it's Great visuals, highly recommended, happened outside of the dedicated Daredevil uh, comic books that were coming out, but it happened in that, it happened in the same period, but outside of Daredevil proper. He says, really, the lecture story, this is Frank talking, was an exercise in several ways. I said it was a storytelling exercise. I wanted to do a story without many thought balloons or captions. I also wanted to make use of the techniques that I have been absorbing while going over Japanese samurai comics. I found Japanese comics really remarkable in several respects. I was able to read 100 pages of one the other day without ever becoming confused, and I don't read Japanese. They rely totally on the visuals to communicate. They They approach comics as a pure form, more than American comic book artists do. You can see all of the nuts and bolts of what's coming after Daredevil with Ronin. In, in the stuff that Frank is hitting on here. I mean, every step is choreographed, where his mind is going to take us next. It's all in this interview. Frank says, uh, when I first proposed doing the story, the editor, Denny O'Neill, <clears throat> thought it would take a little more work from my end to understand it. It was an attempt on my part to do something with the form that was more fundamental than anything I had done before. Yes, it may take another uh, sitting to absorb it, but I think it ultimately was worthwhile. He says. <clears throat> the guy says, "Do you study comic books?" And Frank Miller says, "I study movies. I have found that the Alfred Hitchcock Truffaut book is the best book I've read on doing comic books. Also, both of them, Truffaut and Hitchcock, huge Steven Spielberg influences. Okay, get going back to Jaws, Close Encounters, uh, Raiders. Uh, I mean, he." Incredibly informative to Spielberg and to Frank Miller. Uh, the interviewer says, "Can you transfer film technique to comic books?" Now let me step out again. This is what set Frank apart: the way that he broke down his stories, his page layouts, his pacing. It was as if you were watching a movie. Is it was as if you were watching polished storyboards. That is that is the signature technique. And people like Paul Smith and Barry Smith and everybody named Smith you know, and, and, and and countless others followed. John Byrne would incorporate. Frank was one of the most impactful storytellers the business comic book genre has ever seen. He says, his answer to that, he says, uh, when the guy says, can you transfer film technique to comic books directly? He says, you can, but you can adapt film techniques to comic books. And recently I've been watching some German expressionist movies. I found that the way that they create sets just for psychological purposes is something that the comic book artists could do a hell of a lot more with than they do. Instead of just doing rooms, they could do state of mind of the person who's in them as a room. The first place that I was able to apply this practice was in a scene in the prison where the prisoners narrating the story. I threw out my entire file of Rikers Island because everything looked like a grade school uh, jail. So I changed it. The floors, the bars, the walls were bars, the ceilings were bars, everything to reinforce a trapped feeling. That is the material that I studied. So further down, again, Frank has just given us, I'm giving you about 10 or 12 of the, of the hot dimes of this interview. Uh, the interviewer says, hey, I would like to discuss the philosophy that you have uh, on superheroes. Daredevil has a moral code comparable to Superman's vow to never take a life. And Miller goes, yes, except Daredevil's vow gets tested far more often. Decker says, but isn't this the kind of sop thrown in mainly for the reader's parents? And Frank goes, in Daredevil case, no, it's not. Again, the is like, you're just trying to, you know, satisfy if the mom and dad pick up the comic and it passes there, like, oh, okay, Billy's reading a, a hero that, that it has a noble, you know, a noble calling, a moral, uh, you know, um, a moral code. And Frank says, uh, no, it's not. He goes, in Batman's case, I think it clearly is there for the, you know, parents, he's saying. Then the interviewer says, the demarcation here seems to be between the responsible hero and then the vigilante like like Punisher. Frank Miller says, I consider Punisher to be Batman without any impurities. The motivation of the Batman and the motivation of Punisher is fairly clear. He hates criminals. They want them dead. Daredevil's motivation is more complicated than that. He wants law and order, even to the point of not breaking the laws himself. He does not allow people to die, not even his enemies, because he ultimately does not regard that that, that is his decision to make. And the interviewer says, like the case when he saved Bullseye's life. And Frank says, yes, the case that he's referring to is prior to Daredevil 181, almost two years prior, Frank could have had a train run over bullseye, but pulls him off the tracks at the last minute and really grapples with doing it. And it was a great scene, which showed you the the truest sense of the nobility and the cause that Daredevil is fighting for, really drilled it home as, as a reader. So that is what he is saying to here. And he says, uh. And, uh, and, and and Frank says, yes, right. When he says, like the case where he saved Bullseye's life, Frank says, yes, right. The interviewer then says, nice bit about the court letting Bullseye go free almost immediately, by the way. Frank laughs, says laughter, and he says, well, that's one of the things about working with these characters. I don't necessarily believe that Daredevil's right about everything that he says. The character is built on very strong and basic principles. It would have been a terrible violation of those principles for him to let Bullseye die. Daredevil has to believe that the law will work in every instance, but I'm not allowed he frank says but i am allowed he frank miller to believe differently the interviewer says all right matt murdoch daredevil is already doing his part to help to to uphold law and order why does he feel obligated to put on a red suit and fight crime in the way that he does he goes well this is one of the things i've spent a long time working out in fact i was writing a piece today in order to help define it for me frank continues and says but there are serious dangers of creating perpetuating stereotypes if all your criminals are black that certainly is a statement of a sort since everything in the piece of work is a statement that is something you have to be aware of when you're doing the work on the other hand i don't believe that the goal of a writer or fiction is to brainwash an audience to shape the way that they think he says uh the interviewer says to frank you can have a chinese laundry man in a story which is a stereotype that is almost a classic But in fact, and this is again, you guys, this interviewer, this is his words, interviewing Frank in 1982. And he says, follow up, you can actually walk down the street of New York right now and see plenty of Chinese laundries. Frank says, there is a real source for every single stereotype. There is a character in Daredevil who 10 years ago probably would have been very offensive. The black thug who gets punched out every two issues. And the interviewer says, that's Turk, the... the, uh the black guy you used who who has a lisp frank says he doesn't have the lisp anymore he's become a regular member of a regular member of my supporting cast and i gotta tell you guys uh there was a show called starsky and hutch about two cops that i watched growing up and they had an informant that they would always go to uh, a guy he was kind of the fourth lead on the show named huggy bear his name was huggy bear and he always had fur coats hats he was the guy on the street in the bars uh in the alleys among the gangs that would give Starsky and Hutch all of their info. And that is truly how I saw Frank Miller depicting Turk during this time in 1982. And Starsky and Hutch was like 76, 77, 78, 79. So they're very close in, in terms. Starsky and Hutch was LA. Daredevil was New York. Frank says he is now a member of our dedicated supporting cast, but he is very stupid and he's also very bad. He loses each and every time. Had I done this character 10 years ago, I would have gotten a tremendous amount of flack for it. Uh, now, he, Turk is one of the most popular characters in the book. Daredevil visited him almost every issue, and and, and Turk would try and run from Daredevil or not give up the, the info, and, and Daredevil would hang him off the side of the building, throw him into a car. They'd have this repartee repertoire between them, but Daredevil would always get the upper hand on him. Uh, Decker says, is that because uh, things have been said and points are being made? Frank says, there's a major development in what is accepted in popular culture. We are allowed to use black people as villains now. That is equality. I've only gotten one letter complaining about Turk, that I was using a black man as a fool and a rat. I wrote back explaining that most of our characters in Daredevil are bad people, not good people, and I'll use anyone who's out there as material for my stories. Then this shifts, because again, even reading this, very you know nerve-wracking, but this is 1982 uh the interviewer says but what about women as you know our distinguished competition that's dc comics uh have been making a career endlessly rewriting the same article you know how comics are sexist and frank miller says well the answer is of course they are laughter then decker says and you have a character like electra who is certainly something very different frank miller says i have found that there's a simple way to get the feminist contingent the real heavy-duty radical feminist contingent angry at you go ahead and do a woman character and I think he's also saying, go ahead and write a woman character as a man. <clears throat> the interview says, is there no way that you can do it right? Miller says, no. If a woman character is tough and assertive, then you are castigated for portraying women as tough and assertive. If you do a Heather Glenn or a Sue Storm, you're castigated for perpetuating a stereotype. That's just a particular group that cannot be satisfied, and I don't intend to even try to satisfy them. I created a lecture as a character that I was interested in doing, not as a means to satisfy readership. The interviewer says, a credible female villain. He says, yes, I worked on giving her a personality, a weapon, and a means of fighting that would make it believable. She is in no way as physically powerful as Daredevil and functions differently in every situation. She makes what she lacks. She makes up for what she lacks in physical s- skill with her um, fighting skills. And Frank says, and she does it in her own particular way. Her weapon is a sai, which is used in, kar- in karate to augment one's strength. It is referred to as a karate weapon since the power of almost every karate can be amplified with it. And the interview goes just just so we're clear, that's the trident weapon that she is carrying. He goes, "Yes, it is called a sai since it makes every karate blow more powerful. It would be a natural woman, a natural weapon for a woman to use." Uh, he goes on to say that uh, <clears throat> I am interested in doing characters I want to depict. I am not interested in my character satisfying any particular group of readers. So as you can see. He he really is doubling down that he does these characters for himself. He is not going to give in to criticism of others, men, women, uh, fans at the time. Frank is is really, you know, sticking to the beat of his own drum. The interviewer asks him about the short story that he did in Bizarre Adventures because he gave uh, the the person that Evo- e- Electra is hunting in that story the the contract she's taken on. the the The, the, the character's name is Er von Eisenbluth. And he says, "My brother gave me that name." And then he said, uh, "You know, was it was it intended, you know, to make him uh, a Nazi?" And he said, "Well, I may have been doing the stereotype comic book Nazi. It wasn't my intention." Uh, and then he said, "Look, the entire story was an exercise in shorthand. Again, going back to this very cool, all black and white at the time. I've I've never seen it colored. It's still when they reprint it, it's black and white." Uh, Frank Miller wrote. Penciled inked this in in Bizarre Adventures. He says, uh, the entire story was an exercise in shorthand. Electra maybe has two or three lines in it. Very few of the characters say anything. Usually their lines describe their motivation. With von Eisenbluth, I was pressing a button. I was waving something in front of people so that they would react the way that I wanted them to react. He said, the interviewer says, the story has Electra realize she's been working for a Nazi the entire time and she is disgusted and kills him. And Frank says it was testing just how bad she can be, the same way that she tests just how good Daredevil can be. Uh, then they talk about *Raise the Lost Ark* and how they're disappointed in how the Nazis were uh, depicted, and their their specific the the depiction is that we should have felt more sympathy. For the Nazis that are burned up on the island when they open the ark, because they were nineteen-year-old draftees who didn't want to be Nazis in the first place. That's the interviewer's position. So it's not a sympathy. It's not a sympathy to the Nazi ideolo- ideology. It is a sympathy that, like that, we just that Spielberg just wipes out all these Nazis uh, on, on the island, and, and, and so many of the soldiers were again, as he said, nineteen-year-old draftees who didn't want to be there in the first place. Frank says, "Yeah, that is pretty severe." Uh, he Frank then says, "I think they missed one of the best bets of the entire movie with that last scene." I kept waiting for the American insignia on the box to melt off the same way that God melted the Nazi insignia Nazi insignia off earlier. And I got to tell you guys, as far as this interview goes, one of the coolest things I think Frank pointed out. I would be I would have been all down for that. I love it. It's it, any any of the symbols, you know, of man. Uh, God would not have wanted. Anywhere near, you know, his his Ark of the Covenant. So I thought that was a cool little bit that he that he threw in there that I would share. We're rounding down on this interview, trying to again, I mean, they they just want to talk about Ayn Rand and the Fountainhead again and again, maybe give you kind of some some insight into where Frank's head was, uh, because Fountainhead is so uh politically charged as well, where where maybe Frank was at the time. Here, the interviewer says it's pretty clear that both Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby were not as good as when they were working closely with Stanley. This is hilarious to me because I would I would flip it that Stan was never as good as when he was working with them. Okay, Frank says again. This is twenty four year old Frank Miller. He's not working for Stanley. Stanley is in New York City. I'm sorry. Stanley lives in Los Angeles at this time. Stanley moved out at the end of the twenties. Uh, at the end of the twenties, <laughs> in the early nineteen seventies. And he moved out and lives in Los Angeles during this time. So again, Frank Miller works with Jim Shooter, Denny O'Neill, uh, the guy running the day-to-day nuts and bolts businesses, Hobson. Okay. So he, he I don't really believe Frank had a whole lot of interactions whatsoever with Stan. He does not ever cite any personal interactions with him. He says, I think Stan Lee challenged Kirby and Ditko a bit. He probably rode them very hard. Uh, or they may have just been in the most creative periods of their life. Ding, 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 ding. I think that is the answer. He was hard to tell. I understand that Stan wrote all the artists pretty hard and made them redraw things frequently. I do not advocate for that, but the fact that I know, uh, the but the fact that I know who I'm working for in this case, Jim Shooter and Danny O'Neill, cuts down uh, on my variables. It makes it a simple procedure to get the work done, rather than floundering in an open space. I see a lack of discipline as a very danger that comes with the amount of freedom that is now becoming available to artists in comics. He says, uh, and I, I just included that because I, I got to tell you. I would flip it. Uh, Stan did his best work with two visionary geniuses. Just throwing a, throwing in a little uh, side side uh, side commentary there from me as I read and and look back on this. <clears throat> it it follows about him saying, "Are you going to follow trends?" And uh, are we going to see Disco Dazzler, you know, skate through Daredevil? And Frank goes, "Yeah, uh, I don't pander in that way." He says, well, I guess because of the long lead times, the interviewer says, I suppose because they've uh, been historically done by middle-aged men, comic books have seldom been able to capitalize on any fads. Frank says, I don't see anything wrong with picking up on a fad as long as you do it and it satisfies you personally. I deliberately picked up on the ninja thing as soon as I saw it coming and worked it into Daredevil because as a reader, I was into that fad and partly just want to see what would happen. But there's a big difference between trying to improve and continue with your own work in your own direction and shutting yourself off from what's happening around you. If you pander too much to your audience, you cease to exist. If you ignore the rest of the of the world, you have nothing to draw from. Uh he he. Uh, that they, they go on and discuss uh, <clears throat> a few more topics. Again, I'm going by an entire page of the Fountainhead stuff because this is just we just don't have the time to go keep getting into Ayn Rand and and, and the Fountainhead. Um, it, it wraps up with, uh, and they get a little bit into the comic code, but they talk about violence. And he says, uh, the violence in Daredevil is rather honest, Frank says. It, it, we are willing to be violent and admit that that is what uh, readers want in the fiction. I think we could be much more hypocritical about it Violence in fiction has a stigma attached to it. It's obvious that people want it. It's obvious that people get to a certain degree of pleasure uh, with it. And it's obvious that people then feel guilty about it. I don't think the guilt is necessary, Frank says. It is definitely not the same thing to read a violent story as it is to hit someone. It is not the same thing to write a violent story as it is to hit someone. There's been an increasing number of letters complaining about the violence in Daredevil. At the same time, the sales have been going through the roof astronomically. The interviewer says, how much violence does the average person really see in real life? Not too long ago, I was in New York City, and I saw a policeman use his billy club on a rowdy juvenile, and it was the first violence that I had seen since a fist fight years ago in the office that I worked at. Frank says, most people see Roadrunner, Roadrunner cartoons when they're kids, they read comics when they're older, and then they go to Kung Fu movies. It's very lyrical. Then the interviewer says, there's a difference between seeing actual violence and fictitious vol- violence. In the case of the office fistfight that I mentioned, the people watching it were stunned and they were too paralyzed to move. And after it was over, some of the women in the office were openly crying. I suppose because of the raw emotions uh, that, that had been released. Of course, when I was in New York and saw the policeman go at the kid with his billy club, the people around me were trying very hard to not to not notice that anything was going on. Frank Miller says, I have seen the very opposite happen. I've seen civilians in action. I helped stop a criminal lately. I ran after the guy with the cops running down the other side of the street. And a cab driver pulled onto the curb and hopped out. He was a big hulk of a man. And he stepped into the crook. I have seen civilians help catch criminals. But as far as real-life violence, my experience has been very few. The one time where I actually got punched in the mouth hard was one of the ugliest experiences of my life. It certainly generated the ugliest emotion that I have ever experienced. In many ways, it does not relate to the comic comic books at all so i think that this is a really cool discussion that they're having about violence and the interviewer says so violence in comics and other fiction is much more common than it is in real life frank says yes and it serves often simply as a movement across a page or a screen what i when i do a fight in a story i would rather show people bleed than not just to remind people what they're looking at and not make it comfortable for them to enjoy the fights that i'm depicting and uh he then goes back to Frank saying, "It's all lyrical how people look at Roadrunner ca- cartoons, then read comic books, then go see kung fu movies." And uh, the interviewer says, "Do you think kung fu movies are a sort of ballet?" And Frank says, "They are the closest relative uh, to musicals. You know, in dance it's Fred Astaire." And then the interviewer says, "Kung fu movies are all choreographed." And Frank says, "The good ones are the good ones are planned as well as any Fred Astaire." Uh, dance in a musical but it's not the same appeal i go to kung fu movies but i don't go to fred astaire musicals there's something that i get out of a kung fu flick and that some people get out of a musical that i just can't find so frank then says i'm not a violent person i'm not an angry person if i didn't do what i do for work i might be more angry and more violent i get a i let a lot of steam off through my work he then talks about morals and he says moral questions are clear this is frank speaking Someone once said that the appeal of Superman is that he is incredibly strong and vulnerable and nice. He's on our side. It's very comfortable to know that there's a godlike figure going around making everything right for us. There's a lot of what's that a lot of what superheroes are about, particularly with children finding themselves in a world that frequently makes no sense whatsoever when where their parents or their teachers are often totally arbitrary in their actions, where it's impossible to understand why they do the things that they are doing and why they are so cruel. To have moral concepts worked out on paper and a world where people fight for them, I think that's a lot of what draws our audience to comics. Sidebar here, everything he's saying about Superman here will be pushed in Dark Knight, in the Dark Knight work, and I'm sure if you are, as you're reading this along, you are making the same equations. The gentleman says, uh, yes, things get simplified in that way. You can fight for what you believe in, in much smaller, more graphic terms than what fighting for what you believe in the real life could be. Frank says, even defining who's in on a joke is so hard in real life. I don't think any of the people I've hated in my life have ever raped anyone or killed anyone. It takes so long to figure things out in the real world where everything is so complicated. But fiction, if it does serve any of the social purposes that we are talking about, can provide people with the tools of helping and finding where they're at. The interviewer says, thank you for this interview, Frank Miller, and it is over. So I just wanted to share with you guys this Comics Journal interview because you can see a lot of where young Frank Miller is coming at. He, he When he says, I got it on the ninja fad, I've always told you that his work really introduced young American audiences like myself to the Eastern uh, movies, the, the, the Kung Fu, the karate films. I was seeing them after school on, on the weekends on the, on the Channel 5, Channel 9, Channel 13 weekend film festivals. They would do all sorts of Kung Fu, Karate Week, certainly um, Kung Fu with David Carradine. Had, had had been running in prime time. Bruce Lee was a breakout superstar, but then it moved into this, again, this ninja era. And again, Frank just applied it so immediately, so thoroughly, and did it even better than many of the movies that I've seen. You had the Yakuza, you had ninjas, you had Kingpin and his American, his, his New York gangs, uh, gangsters going up against much far more ruthless, you know, Japanese Yakuza, um, just Daredevil, Electra, all in the middle of it this 24 year old frank miller interview i thought was very insightful i wanted desperately to give it to you and bring it to you Uh, frank is mentioned in the royalty article and i also wanted to share with you and this is really fun is that the rest of the comics journal interview uh the rest of this thing uh, i'm sorry the rest of the magazine then has two different editorial pieces on uh, Frank uh, on 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 Daredevil. Two dedicated editorial pieces follow. Uh, follow Frank's interview. Uh, one of which says states, as I flip through it, uh, it, it one is harsh, one is not. It says uh, morality amid violence and corruption, and it's written by a gentleman named Ed Via. Then the last uh, commentary comes more in the shape of a review of what Frank is being doing is doing. But it says, Electra shock treatment. Now, at the end of Ed Vias, his last sentence I thought was really good. Because again, somehow in, in in the interview journalism space, this daredevil was really being dragged for its violence, which I didn't know at the time. I was just digging it. The last, um, the last paragraph, I'm not going to read this. It's like a five-page essay. I'm reading the last paragraph of it. In a particularly well-written sequence at the end of Daredevil 169, Miller's protagonist answered the bitter condemnation of a police officer who thought he should have let Bullseye get hit by the train. He said, "I'm not God. I am not the law. I'm not a murderer." If Miller follows up on that promise shown in the story in the initial King, uh, in the initial uh, kingpin issues in the in, in in the inspiring where angels fear to tread, it's flawed but basically well-plotted and magnificently rendered in a tale called "The Damned." His Daredevil might not only continue to be one of the best comic books on the market, but also someday be regarded as a classic of the medium. But if its violence continues to be as gratuitous as it has been, if its laudable moral tone is muted by excessiveness that belies the the creator's intentions, it will tragically just be be another missed masterpiece. To which I say, a poppycock. Poppycock. It ended up being a seminal work. Let me. Let me. I, I meant to say this at the top. Let me say this at the end. Frank Miller took over Daredevil as the penciler in 1979. He started writing it in the early 1980, 80 to 90, 90 to 2000, 2000 to 2010 to 220. I mean, we. This is 43 years in the rearview mirror. Every cinematic, television, streaming, live action depiction of Daredevil in the last 25 years are Frank Miller's. The Ben Affleck jennifer garner uh fox daredevil movie was based on the works of frank miller whether you liked it or not the template of it was the work of frank miller the netflix um the netflix series with charlie cox is worked all three seasons are based on the work of frank miller as they now return and do born again and Disney does it. It is worked it is on the it is based on the work of Frank Miller. That is one feature film, three seasons on Netflix, and a soon to come Disney. They cannot escape his impact. It is that incredibly impactful. His work on Daredevil is as his work on on Daredevil is uh is is as uh impactful and influential and inspirational as anything he did with with batman and so the reason we keep coming back to this is because nobody can can leapfrog past the way that he just remade daredevil in his image so today uh wanted to share this with you wanted to get into the brain of a young frank miller share this with you it's an exciting interview you may not have access to it that's why i brought it to you my covers are tattered uh they're barely holding holding together uh basically the covers are ripped, but but one staple is combining them. It, it, I got to get it back in the bag. Really fun uh, sharing this with you, getting in the, in the mind of young Frank Miller before he becomes the super god of comics that he will become. But again, I do believe where you encounter Frank Miller, don't let that determine the work that he has done. It, it's it, Don't go see West Side Story and think that's Steven Spielberg. That's not Steven Spielberg. You're missing out on Munich, Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report, War of the Worlds, Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders brilliant schindler's list jurassic park i mean it is but 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 if you only come upon him in the last 10 years as maybe my kids if i never showed them anything and their first movie was warhorse they would have a different depiction of, of of steven spielberg check out the entirety of frank's body of work respect him give him his due he um i am i am an avid frank miller uh just super fan and and so happy that anytime we get to delve into his mind and that's what we did today with this comics journal you guys know that at the end of each and every episode here on raw observations we uh we love to read the reviews that you guys are so generous in 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 leaving for this show It, it humbles me that you would even approach your uh your you know typewriter and uh and, and, and share the uh, the passion with me and and I, I just I am so thrilled each and every time that we can bring you reviews it helps us on the platform it helps us stand out it, it, it there's so many podcasts obviously so 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 having your reviews having your ratings having your five stars is is an absolute boon for us and I, and I am so thankful that, that you guys share them with us Today's review comes uh, from from Australia. And, <laughs> uh, it says worldwide pride, worldwide pride, worldwide pride from Australia. Uh, thank you, Australia. He gives it, he gives us five stars. He says, Mr. Liefeld's enthusiasm for comics is purely infectious, always well-researched. And from a place of love, you simply cannot continue to hate this man at all after a single episode of this podcast. If you love comics history and authenticity, authenticity. if you love comics history and authenticity, this is the podcast for you. Hey, I'm sorry that you even hated me for a little while. Thank you. I'm glad that one podcast did the trick. I do appreciate so much that you would take the time to um, fill out a, a review, send it in, give us five stars. I am so grateful, Australia, for worldwide pride. Thank you for that generous review you guys again the reviews i read them at the end of the show when you read them and you give us um the five stars and you give us a positive review it just helps the entire show uh gain more traction and more notoriety okay again this is uh we i, I offer this free out of love and passion and i am just so thankful at all of your reactions and today again comics journal number 70 frank miller 24 years old review i thought Hey, man, this is something out of the time capsule, out of the vault that you would enjoy. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. That's it. R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Nothing in between. Just Robert Liefeld. Find me on Twitter. I love hanging with you, talking with you, chatting back and forth. I read your messages, your DMs, your replies. You guys crack me up. Follow me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram is the photo dump of my life. My pictures of what I'm eating, what I'm drawing, where my family's heading, what we're doing just goofy stuff. It is my photo dump. My kids call it cringe. I invite you to the cringe of my Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld over there at Rob Liefeld. There's a blue check, uh, a notification that is less, uh, uh, conspiratorial and, uh, controversial as, 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 as the now controversial check over on Twitter. Uh, but, but there's, 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 there's there's a, there's still a blue check next to my name over on Twitter, but Instagram blue check Rob Liefeld Tells you it's really me. Again, I love your comments, your replies, your DMs, your messages. Thank you so much for interacting with me over there. I am on Whatnot. I am returning to Whatnot. I took a small break. Whatnot is a collectible app. They sell comics, trading cards, game cards, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh! They sell kicks, sports gear, jerseys, baseballs, Funko Pops toys. I share signed comics, Funko Pops toys and original art on my Whatnot broadcast. I go live. I am looking right at you, talking to you each and every time. Whatnot, I am Rob Liefeld. Get the app, download it, follow Rob Liefeld, and you'll be notified when I do a new show. Generally somewhere, Wednesday, Saturday is the vicinity that I do shows. We have tons of exclusives. I have a Whatnot uh, Deadpool New Mutants exclusive. I have a Whatnot Amazing Spider-Man exclusive. I have a Whatnot Brigade exclusive. We have tons of exclusive books. We have a new Deadpool batter Blood coming up in the next two months that'll launch on the whatnot platform with me again on my show rob liefeld follow me look forward to seeing you on whatnot on facebook we have a group it's called rob liefeld marvel extreme and beyond i invite you to join us over there so many of you are crashing the joint we love seeing you we love having the conversations continue we enjoy the back and forth we share comics and art there's art contests Uh, A lot of the conversations that we have on the podcast continue there. We invite you to join us, either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala. S-A-L-A, that's uh, the man that you will know. Myself and Terry are the ones that will click you in. That's how you know it's legit. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond is the Facebook group I invite you to join. It's the end of the show. I wish you well, as I always do. I want your spiritual, your mental, your emotional, and your physical health to be as good as you possibly can get, can, 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 can make it get away, take a break, go see a great movies. we got so many good movies now returning to, 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 to um, the the cinemas, the, the, the movie houses. I'm rooting for them to, to continue to succeed. So we got to get out. We got to see good movies, Um, you know, get out, watch great streaming shows. Just take time for yourself kick back, go have a great meal with your loved ones, with your family, with your wife, with your kids, read a comic book, eat candy, pizza, burritos, tacos, hamburgers, whatever, hot dogs, bratwurst. You cook it, I'll eat it. Just get that break. Get away from the grind and take some time for yourself. That is what I am advocating. Please come back and see me next time. I will be here waiting for you. We will absolutely inevitably most certainly talk again real soon.